Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Our guest this week is Manfred Mann, of course, of the band Manfred Mann, who had hits with Do What Diddy Diddy, Pretty Flamingo, Mighty Quinn, My Name's Jack, among others. He was also part of Manfred Mann's Chapter 3, Manfred Mann's Earth Band, who had a huge hit with Blinded by the Light. We went to Manfred Mann's South London home to talk about his music career and life in and out of South London. So you grew up in South Africa and yes. were born there, of course. What attracted you to London? It's nothing that attracted me to London. It's what disattracted me to South Africa. I just wanted to get out, um, as did an awful lot of people of my generation. Well, actually not an awful lot, a particular subgroup. We just wanted to leave and get out of there. Now, London was connected by a British Commonwealth and it was the place you went to simply because that was the place you could easily get into. Because at that time, South Africa was part of the Commonwealth. It was easy to get in here. So it wasn't so much London. Had New York been part of the... Amer- we'd been part of the American Commonwealth, I might have gone to New York. It was mainly the big motivation was to get out of South Africa. Before you left, you were already into music in South Africa's first rock band. Is that no, true? No, no, no absolutely untrue. <laughs> myth, on, an online myth. It's completely wrong, yeah. I was a jazz musician playing in coffee bars. When you came, so when you came to London, you ended up in war. I'm curious how you could have ended up. Uh... Well, my girlfriend, come wife at the time, found a place to rent. Um, she kind of her sister, her family were sort of connected a bit with Waterloo and a bit south, so she found this place in Walworth. You know. So at the time, I mean, this was long before I was successful. It wasn't long, but it seemed a long time. So we had a very small apartment in, in Walworth Road, yeah. Yeah, on Arnside Street, is that mm-hmm. correct, yeah. Wow, you've been doing your work, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, no, well, long ago my dad mentioned that uh, Manfred Mann lived on Arnside Street and it just yeah, seemed... Yeah, oh, I see. Okay. To and Jack Rock very true. close by as well, so... Oh, OK. Yeah, literally, on Merrow Street, you know, the next street along. I didn't know that. Yeah. I do remember wandering around there and um, seeing... Occasionally, I'd sort of go out, because I didn't have a phone, so I'd go to a call box and I'd see a... Um, There'd be a hearse waiting around the corner. Oh, a bit of a hearse. And then another day I'd go walk around somewhere else and there'd be another hearse. And I just thought, this is getting weird. I realised there was a funeral parlour around there and they were just sitting there parking, you know, waiting and sort of, you know. And I thought that everywhere I was going, I was sort of seeing this hearse like it was waiting for me. After a while, it was spooking me. <laughs> and a mental memorial on every corner. Yeah, yeah. I just started thinking, shit, you know, there's a hearse. Well, you can't be an unbeliever that sort of stuff, but... Why is it there, you know, after a while? <laughs> so what was Woolworth like in those days? It was, a, compared to, say, South Africa? Well, I wouldn't say Woolworth compared to South Africa. I mean, it's England yeah, compared right. to South Africa. Well, you're coming from a fascist dictatorship where the press is controlled, where you're frightened to say what you think, where, through, where 80% or 75, 75% of the population can't live where they like, go to the schools they like, go to the toilets they like, and are, basically oppressed, I mean, the question answers itself, doesn't it? You know, I mean, it's another world, a complete other world. I mean, it's basically coming from the 18th century, you know, about 200 years forward. To some ways, it's also a bit backward, as it happens in some ways, but still. Better than? Well, it was better than there, but I was, you know, the odd thing is, if you really is, I was shocked at the amount of racism in Britain, and I'm coming from South Africa. So... I'm thinking I'm coming to the home of liberal democracy and everybody being equal. And I'm kind of quite shocked 
that no one's at that time criticizing me for being a white South African. People are kind of a bit sympathetic in the problems we've got and stuff, you know. So it wasn't what I expected at all, you know, coming to the place that got rid of slavery. And, um, you know, there's no blacks, Irish or dogs, you know, could rent apartments and things. So I was quite shocked the amount of racism in Britain. Obviously, you formed uh, Maverick Man with Mike Hart. In time, yes. So coming from a jazz background, were you... Did you particularly want to make pop music? No, not at all. Um, we were just broke, basically. And, my, and so Mike suggested, it was Mike's idea, not mine. I thought he was crazy. Let's form a sort of blues band. You know, we can pretend we're blues people. And blues and jazz is very, very close. Uh, at least it was to me, because I always liked that end of jazz anyway. Um, is that true? Well, perhaps it wasn't true, I don't know. But we thought, well, if we played kind of the blues jazz end of it, Ray Charles kind of stuff, you know, there were jazz musicians in Ray Charles' band, we'd kind of get away with it. Where it became a proper blues band is when Paul Jones was there because he was kind of interested in blues and he knew more about it than I did. And so that was the combination that made it what it was, whatever it was, in the early 60s. And 54321, were you hired to write the theme tune to we this We were asked show, to write yeah. the theme tune to Ready, Steady, Go, you know, but, you know. Countdown a rocket, countdown TV program. It's not a work of genius, you know. No, but it is a catchy tune, isn't it? And that's the kind of key. I don't place. know whether it's a catchy tune, but it was catchy at the time, or it sounded different to a lot of other stuff at the time. Um, and it had a lot of energy. We were a live band. In those days, you had to play together at the same time. So there was always more energy in the records. I'm not saying there were better records, but there were certainly more energy in the early 60s than in late 60s, for example. I read on your website, there's a sort of section of uh, stories mm-hmm. where you're talking about um, recording 54321 mm-hmm. and not realising that you could lay down tracks. Uh, when you're I had no the idea. To me, tracks, the thing a train ran on. <laughs> <laughs> tracks, and what's this, you know? And the guy, well, I think you've read the story. The guy says, because Paul's going, chicka, 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 54321. The guy says, can't the chicka, chickas carry on? And I'm thinking... You can't. I'm just thinking this guy's really stupid. How do you get a job? You can't talk and play at the same time. I mean, you know, dumb guy. He's the guy who's running the TV show. Jesus. No, you see, Paul can't breathe and do it at the same time. And then engineer said, we put on another track. So, track? You know, track through a forest. And then what he's talking about. And that's when you first started learning about recording. And then we only had four tracks. So more or less you played everything at the same time. You had one track to add up and they had some tricks to kind of make it more. But that's why very early Beatles, I mean, for example, very early Beatles, she loves you, yeah. You know, those things are straight in your face. Mm. Later Beatles is perhaps better music. I don't know, it's a matter of opinion. But all you need is, you know, they, they don't have that bang in your face. Lucy in the sky. They're, they're kind of much, you know, you could argue that they're better musically, a bit weird. They're more so. arranged, aren't they? Rather yeah, than you may say psychedelic in that, but they haven't got, she loves you, yeah. She hasn't got, haven't got that. They even do what did he, there she was. You know, you just, there's no, you know, the subtlety. You haven't got time for that. You've got to play at the same time. So if, I'm often asked, gee, hasn't the music scene, um, Changed so much with technology, and we all use computers, and we move notes, and we make put things in tune and stuff. I said no, the biggest change in music ever was from having to play all together to being able to play one at a time. That was the biggest change, and that took place bloody fifty years ago. That was the big change. Music became a, a more interesting thing. Some of I think some of the energies potentially got lost. A certain kind of energy went. So you were learning on the job, really. 
like you know you didn't know about those kind of well no we weren't learning on the job because we were musicians and at that time engineers were doing it so we didn't have to learn it no i didn't learn it i mean you kind of learned a bit it's only later on that you kind of had to learn on the job in fact it's only with computers where you could do stuff at home we think well i'm not going to pay pay a guy to do it well i do but but that's because james is you know a wonderful guy to work with and he's really helpful and stuff but i don't really need but it's better to have somebody else there to bounce off they come up with ideas and stuff so you learn to really i started learning about engineering i made a i made a conscious effort to be ignorant most of my life to do with engineering big desk 400 knobs i don't want to know it's hard enough to play piano properly don't tell me what it's about and still if you were upstairs in my studio there you'd see me operating computer fine then you see this old fashioned desk there I know how to operate the computer because I had to learn. I don't know how to operate the desk <laughs> because I had to learn the computer. And the desk was the thing I always didn't want to know about. What does that mean? I have to ask phone people up to do the old <laughs> stuff, but the new stuff I can do. So you skipped the whole. Uh, yeah, I skipped of... <laughs> the whole thing and just got into computers in the end. Yeah. In terms of the Beatles and that time, Man from Man got folded into the sort of British invasion and this whole pop In the United States, yeah, it was called yeah. that, yeah. Um, how, how was that? Did you, did you feel, uh, did you identify with the other bands as part of that movement? You see, a movement is a thing that comes in with history. It's a movement that's seen in social context. It's made people feel differently about themselves. It starts representing sexual liberation. The change of people in England from the 50s. I sort of went to work, played a keyboard and went home. <laughs> I didn't care about that stuff. It never seemed to me, because I didn't grow up in Britain. The big change for me was coming to Britain in the first place. I didn't know what people were like in the 50s, what happened in the 60s, what shirts they were all wearing and stuff. It was never of interest to me. I never associated with it at all. I was kind of a, always felt a bit of a fake, um, sort of I'm a jazz musician in a pop world. And not only that, we're not real artists. You know, we were kind of doing other people's songs, so, you know. It was a conscious, I'm a musician, and I'm never a real artist. I don't deserve that sort of respect, you know, in a sense, because they, they've all got something to say. I'm, I'm just finding a song of fiddling about with it till it works, you know. I've got good judgment, and I've probably been overpaid for my talent, you know, rather than feeling misunderstood by the world. I'm not sure I'd quite agree yeah. with that. Yeah, anyway. sorry, I'm not sure I quite agree with. Well, that, I didn't write the songs. So yeah, no, I know. So there's I'm something aware, true yeah. about that. But you, you, you believe me. You place your own identity upon those, don't you? It's not just a case of, of copying. Let me explain something to you. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying as humility. I think I'm really intelligent and bright, and I think it requires immense flexibility to understand that you're not a good writer and you're going to find another route through this because you can't compete with people like the Stones and the Beatles who are great writers and I can't compete with that. How am I going to compete? There's not much humility in what I'm saying. I'm really confident about the fact, my God, I found a way to do this. I'm not as good as those people at those things. That's just real. Of course I was able to do things that are good and of course some of it is good and very interesting and stuff. I'm not saying I'm not good. I, I think I have exceedingly good judgment for the ability the Lord gave, the, not that I'm a believer, but <laughs> that I have been, you know, g- given. So you don't reassure me too much. <laughs> yeah. but speaking of uh, covers and of great writers, mm. you covered lots of Bob Dylan songs yeah. over, over your career, yeah. not just in Manfred Man, but in other bands. Sure. Um, 
I was wondering about in uh, when you received the basement tapes or the Great White Wonder, as it was mm-hmm. probably called then, if it even basement had a name. Basement tapes, yeah. yeah. Um, and you did uh, Mighty Quinn, yeah. uh, Quinn the Eskimo, and it was uh, number one. Yeah. And later on covered Mrs. Henry as well. Yeah. Well, what was it like receiving that record? Were you a huge Dylan fan, or was it a kind of commercial kind I of I liked the early Dylan. I, I, know, I am a Dylan fan. I did like but it was I just a sort of vulture really you know is there something we can eat in this pile of meat and I was allowed to choose one song cup of meat even cup of meat sorry cup of meat it's one of the lyrics in the (laughs) mouth yeah that's right no I just had these songs and the first song I chose is Mrs Henry and made a mistake I went back and nobody you're only allowed to choose one and I went back and um I said well I've changed my mind I'll do Mighty Quinn I thought somebody else would have picked up on it nobody did so Kind of chose the wrong one, but no, it was sort of a tape. But to be honest, it's kind of a business thing in a way. I liked it, I really liked the very early Dylan stuff, and I, I really do quite like a lot of Dylan stuff. And I, I like it, I don't listen to it though, actually, at home much. So, but when you hear them, they're, they're great. When you're picking a song to cover, mm-hmm. well, what what goes into it, into making it a great cover? You know, say like with Dylan, you've got this. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how many tracks there are on it in those days, but you've got this whole range of things. Are you listening to the track, hearing what you might do on it? Sometimes I have an ability that doesn't always come through, but sometimes I can hear a song, and probably this is something that most people can't do, if there's anything that I can do, and I can hear it differently as I'm hearing the original. As I hear it, I can hang on... You can do that different. You could hang on. You could do that faster, or you could do it slower. Hang on, that's better than it sounds. That's really good, but it, the artist hasn't done it in a way that's accessible. You know. So sometimes I can do that. Actually, hear the other arrangement. A lot of the time, you think that's catchy tune. That that's a good tune. You can do something with it. And I just sit and pianos in there. And I just play it over and over and over and over and over so much. In the end, you find another way to do it. I mean, I've just done an album where I've done We Will Rock You. And if you want to, I'll take, I'll play it to you on the piano, how I fiddled with it and came up with different ways of playing it. Yeah, that'd be If you want, I'll do that in a minute. And I'll show you. And you just say, well, can I change the chords? You know, or how can we make it sound a little more emotional? You know, because the original is just straight in your face, right? There's no chords, it's just guys singing over a drum beat. So that means, well, I can change chords here. Give it a different feeling. I'll play it to you, and you, you get an idea of where you can go. Brilliant. Um, you covered uh, Bruce Springsteen's for you. Yes, I did. And um, the way you change the chorus there is something that people don't do when they do covers. No. Well, I'm just trying to make it work for me. And, you know, people say, "Well, it goes like this." Well, go and buy the original then. I mean, it's not just if I'm <laughs> taking the original off the market and burning them. It's not a sort of book burning vibe. You don't like what we've done? Don't listen to it. You will, but the original went. I'm going to the original. <laughs> yeah, it's still there. Yeah, no, no. You just change it. Do what you like, really. So going back to South London again, because it's the kind of focus of our show. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you moved out to Lee. Um, to was it Southbrook Road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had John Mayall up the road. Yeah, that, yeah. That's not coincidence, I assume. Well, it is, well, it is yeah, because oh. I sort of, we were living in Blackheath in a sort of rented place on Lee Road. Lee Road, yeah, not Lee High Road. Lee High Road, the one leading between Blackheath and Greenwich. Yeah, yeah, I know the road, yeah. And um, I think it's Lee Road, isn't it? Or was it Lee High Road? I, don't, I, I think it's Lee Road. Anyway, um, 
And I think Sue, my wife, sort of was friendly with Pamela Mayle. And you know, obviously I got to know John. I went to their house. I thought, wow, this is such a great house. I, I want a house like John's, you know. <laughs> um, and I just waited and waited and kept an eye open. And in the end, the house came up down the road. So it was due to John Mayle being there, who was there first. Um, and his house cost 5000 I remember, you know. And then mine cost 6600 It seemed a lot of money at the time. Um, and the guy wouldn't come down, you know, and so on, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so I bought the house somewhere, but we had a garage, which John didn't. Well, well I don't know what £5,000 was then, but I do know that a second-hand harmonium was maybe worth about £8. <laughs> 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 it was, yeah. Trying to lead in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Will you mind telling the story? Well, John phoned up one day and said, have you, have you, got, have you still got that old harmonium or something? I said, well, yeah, and I thought, didn't like it. You've got to play these pedals. I mean, whack, whack, whack. Also, it didn't sound. It looked nice, though. And he said, well, Paul McCartney's here. He's looking to buy a harmonium. <laughs> so I thought, wow, Paul McCartney, Beatle. I mean, I'm just as starstruck as everybody else, really. So he said, do you mind if we come over? I thought, right, OK, brush my teeth, you know. Um, Paul comes over. Well, you've read the story. I only came over. And, I, you know, I wanted eight quid. And whatever it was, I thought, oh, I'll put it up a price because it's Paul McCartney. And I'm so ashamed of it in later life. It's exactly how you shouldn't think. You want eight, take the bloody eight quid, you know. And I went along and asked for 12. And he didn't buy it. To his credit, that was 50% too much. This is what I assume, or else maybe he didn't want it. But he didn't buy it. And I was wrong. And I thought afterwards... I'm bloody wrong. I'm one of those people who are trying to take advantage, you know, and I really changed. It really changed me. I mean, you, you want something, what's a reasonable price? Try and get the reasonable price, you know, because afterwards people were always putting up the price when I came around, you know. <laughs> you know. So I learned from that, yeah. What year would that be? I don't know, 64, 65. Right, right, right. Early days. Not at the time. At the time, it was modern days. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's true, because you always look back as to some halo of history. You know, things were in colour. They weren't all black and white. No, and and everything was very modern. Well. There's phones and music and yeah. electronic stuff and stereo equipment. You know, it's all new and modern. It's like now. Boy, one day you look back, this is the old days. Mm. You know, and that's one of the things I've learned with age, is that you think you're at the sort of cutting edge all the time. And I look at it completely differently. I mean, I just see that we live in an age where things don't work properly. Computers don't effing work. And everyone assumes, gee, we're great. Well, sorry, we've got a new computer system. When I have to cut a piece of bread with a new knife, I don't say, sorry, it's a new knife. <laughs> you know, or sit on a chair, it's a new chair, it collapses. I mean, the new stuff's supposed to work. We accept completely that one day it won't be like this. Everything will work. Oh, sorry, we've got a new computer system. All of you guys, we all accept it. And I've learned that from getting older. So stuff that doesn't work, stuff doesn't work, and half the stuff's crap. But you think because it's the cutting, the cutting edge, it's all somehow good. No, half of it doesn't work properly nowadays. It's built-in obsolescence as well. I'm not sure it is. No, they don't no. know how to get it to work properly. 
They yeah. don't I, know. I was thinking about sci-fi films. Everything works per- perfectly, doesn't it? Nothing yeah. works how... Like, say, a modern mobile telephone is a terrible piece of equipment. Yeah. It doesn't work, does it? Whatever you, I'm sitting on the bus on the way yeah. in, just smashing the screen. It yeah. doesn't work. That never happens in a sci-fi film. And Everything's people, perfectly yeah. functioning. And people accept that it's, that it's not going to work. I mean, the other day, I mean, I had a massive thing with Wi-Fi going down. I still don't know what happened. BT guy came, fixed all my phones, walked out, none of the phones worked. I managed to shout at him across the road. He came back. Oh, well, you've got to have this and plug... It took days and days and days. And I'm talking to a woman and I say, she says, oh, well, sometimes you need a lead-in if Wi-Fi doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work on Wi-Fi. I said, but it's a Wi-Fi thing. She says, oh, yeah, but sometimes it doesn't work. I said, that means it's not good enough. She says, oh, no, it works, but sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I said, well, that means it's not fit for the purpose for which it's been sold. She said, well, that's just how it is. She was right. Poor girl. I'm having a go at her. She didn't yeah. mean any harm. She's working there, but she's accepted like everybody that half your stuff doesn't work properly, and it doesn't. It's like cars in the 1970s. You, you guys are too young to remember. They didn't work. They kept breaking down. Now cars work, and one day it's all going to work. Oh, that's confident. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned that it's never well, going to work. The thing that bothers me is it's science. It should work the same way every time. I mean, that's the point. We're not doing magic. We're not sort of doing a ritual that might, you know... But you're on a hobby horse of mine, you see. I'm really, really sceptical about science. Now, I'm not sceptical about science because I believe in science utterly. That's why I'm so sceptical. Because we accept all sorts of things with science. That, And we've been conned. I don't mean deliberately by anybody. A real example is that a scientific experiment, as you drop something and there's gravity, you can see that it works. There's no interim, you know, and so on. You take the human, human nutrition... It's too complex. And you can't compare two people exactly that this person's only going to eat that and that there's no other factors in their lives. You can only approximately get it and look at some correlations and then draw a conclusion. That's not proper science. Because in proper science you have real proof, QED, this equals that. So it's this kind of science where you deal with complexity, where we're in the dark ages, human nutrition is one. And sorry, you're on a hobby horse here. For 40 years now, we've been told that saturated fat causes heart disease. You go to the supermarket, 75% less. It's not true. And it's not been true for, uh, for 27 years ago. I bought a book by the guy's a, a doctor who looked at the World Health Organization. It's completely untrue 27 years ago. Now the NHS will tell you it has no... It took 27 years just from that book... All the wrong analysis have been done by scientists. All the advice by governments, cardiologists, professors have been wrong for 40 years. That's legitimate science because human body is too complex to conclusions. If you take climate science, it's really interesting. The only way you can do proper science on climate, really proper, is to have two Earths, one with human <laughs> beings, one without. You can't do that. So you have to make an educated guess. I'm not saying that global warming isn't man-made. But it cannot be how people are saying, because you haven't got two planets to experiment with. And with heart disease, they now say, oh, well, correlation isn't causation. Same thing with carbon and climate. They're not necessarily causation. And it becomes a religion. And then people who disagree are considered to be Republicans or fascists or you support the oil companies. Another way of damning people who disagree. It's very interesting. So, So science is, we've become to believe in it like a religion. And in the end, science is always right, because the science does come through. In the interim period, 30, 40, 50 years sometimes, 
the research, you can, you can ignore this research, on TV they'll show you this research and not that. These scientists, because they're good guys, the, you know, and they think it's good, like heart disease, well, these scientists will tell you what to do, but those guys you don't get to hear about. In the interim, science can be distorted, but not in the long run, science always comes through. Sorry, you shouldn't have said the word science. <laughs> <laughs> If I can get a kind of tenuous link back into music. Yes, go, <laughs> in, uh, go on. So in, Sorry. in um, 1969, you released the first Manfred Mann's Chapter 3 album after Manfred Mann broke up. Yes. And um, you recorded that in the Workhouse Studio in... Yes, in, in, yes. Um, or Maximum Sound Studio, I think it was called at the time, wasn't yeah. it? In the Old Kent Road. Yes. Um, and you ended up owning the studio. Was that? Did you buy it and then start recording in it? Or did you sort of fall no, in love with I, the place? No, I can't even remember, but I think we... St- I think someone we knew was renting it, and we worked. We did it there, and then eventually, we f- we offered the guy who offered to sell it, or we offered to buy it, or something, or whatever. And the three of us bought it. Yeah, bought the building. You were re- and you recorded there, sort of uh, up, until, well, over a decade, up until up until oh, Christ, up until about eight nine years ago. Yeah. Oh right, right. Yeah. And what 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 was uh, was there something special about the place or? You've kind of got quite a kind of functional approach to these things. You go in a booth and record and go home. Well, I mean, people imbue everything with nostalgia in time. Oh, yeah, special vibe. There'll probably be all sorts of people who will tell you that. I'm not sure. There's a bit of a building in the wrong part of town. Nobody wanted to record there because they all get road. Yeah, it must be much better somewhere else. No, I'm not, I, I don't think so. Yeah, you, practically I mean, as well quite easy to get to from. if you're here but yeah. not if you live in Kensington which is why we were never really successful I mean if you really want to know a studio where there was no vibe at all was Abbey Road you know whereas now in mythical vibe Beatles we used to record there there was a place with no vibe it was like a bloody hospital you know there were guys in white coats fixing things it was really very all classical concert and clean and mechanic you know there's no way it was the big funky cool studio no way but as you say with hindsight people put on the rose in their glasses and well the beatles recorded there they made all the great recordings there so there but it wasn't a, it wasn't the and nowadays you guys trying to get a kind of 60s studio it's all sort of funky and there's no way that place was gleaming clean the latest stuff nothing was old fashioned you know they had the latest technology um and, you know, everything was pristine clean. You know. Not compared to the workhouse then? No, no, workhouse was sort of the funky kind of place, but simply not because one wanted it to be. It's just probably cheaper to not replace the carpets. I don't know, or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, Was it yourself behind the renaming of it? So it was Maximum Sound then became the workhouse? I'm not sure it was me who did that, because right. I had two partners at the time, so it might have been one of the other guys. I don't want to take, not that there's much credit <laughs> to be got from changing the studio. <laughs> you recorded an album there called uh, Plains Music. In no, I recorded that mainly in South Africa. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I'd read that it recorded in there and South Africa. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, so, it's in both places. Yeah, but I that finished was, it here. And that was the first thing you ever recorded in South Africa, was it? Well, since well, after well, when I did a, I did an album called Somewhere in Africa, and I recorded some of the vocals for that in South Africa. In fact, a lot of the vocals, all the African vocals, were done in South Africa. Then Plains Music was the only time I'd used, um, you know, players. As the other thing was just singing. Right. Yeah. And was it presumably the end of apartheid that sort of drew you back, or am I reading too much into it? 
Well, to record? To, uh, yeah, to go there in 91 to do the record. Well, I think Apartheid was still operating in 91, was it? No, it, well, it was ending. You know, you're yeah. right, I'm getting it mixed up with an earlier period. Um, no, I just had an idea to do a, an album. It's the only album I can listen to is Plains Music. The others, I keep hearing things wrong with them. Um, I just had this idea of doing Indian, North American, Indian, Native American, if you want to call it that, melodies. And someone had given me an album of um, an African guy used a hunting bow. And I kind of thought, I wonder whether... I, you know, just, I just the idea came casually, and I phoned him up and said, well, contact this guy, and that guy contact this guy, and... I, and I just thought, well, does anybody know a bass player, this sort of thing? And I was there for two weeks. I often got not much to do. used to see my family, but, you know, in the afternoon they're all doing stuff. I'm sitting around looking at the window, you know. Um, and so I did some rehearsals and recorded it while I was there. Well, what was sort of interesting is that at the same time in 91, Manfred Mann, without yourself, get back together as the Manfreds. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't seem to find out why you were not involved. Were did you were you offered? Oh yeah, they were very keen to have me involved. And but, what was there a particular reason you? Well, I'm a musician. So let's take do what did he? What contribution can I possibly make? Bang bang bang! That somebody else can't do. Dang 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 dang. dang. All right, okay. You know, Mike Hug, who was my partner right from the beginning in the Manfred Mann Group, he's a very good musician. Um, Mike can play all the keyboard parts. I don't need to be there. And it's also, it doesn't have much scope, although I think they play some bluesy things and do some other stuff with it. Um, Mike's a very good player, you know, and um, and Paul's a very good harmonica player. So they would do some interesting things. But, you know, I was doing Man for Man's Earth Band. Why would I want to go and play 1960s music? I can play solos and do all sorts of jazzy things and um, with us, which... Is more suited to how I want to play now. I didn't. Nineteen sixties was a straight pop group, even though it had those other elements. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be doing it. And also, I think there's a big element of nostalgia in the audience for that. I know people who've been and they're reliving their youth and stuff. And and I, I think Mike Hug, I mean, plays some wonderful, wonderful musician. A huge respect for Mike. But I don't want to be doing that. You know, why should I do it? It's a similar thing with your attitude to cover versions where you'd have to be faithful to the original and you wouldn't be able well, to... Well, certainly my, as my own view of live performance is completely different to the rest of the world. I don't fit at all because I just think all it's got to do is be exciting. If it's exciting enough, it doesn't have to sound like the record, folks. And people got tapes on and there's, and, you know, there's DJs making sure that the strings sound quite right and this, and they're all listening on headphones and making this sound like the record. You're in a big hall, doesn't sound like a record anyway. It's all bouncing off the walls. One night sounds like this, next night. So which I change the arrangement. All I'm interested in is, is this energetic and exciting? That's all. Are people moving their bodies? You're playing and people are moving. You're through. I'm not interested in the intellectual thing, it's got to be like the record or what people are listening or what it means. I'm just interested that you move your body. That's all I'm interested in when we do a concert. People are moving, we've won. They're sitting and listening, taking it all in intellectually, we've lost, that's my view. Yeah, similarly, um, One Way Glass, which is one of my favourite tracks of yours, yeah. it's tremendous. 
um, you, you almost you covered yourself essentially, didn't you? In uh, that there was a there's a version under chapter three, and then there's a completely new arrangement on an Earthbound record, isn't there? So you're kind of keen to re. re- I can't I mean, even remember. Did I do it twice? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So we've on the new album. I've done it again. Yeah. 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 You've done it for a third time. Yeah. Well, I've done it for the third time because Prodigy did it. So I'm playing over the Prodigy version. That's what I'm doing. I didn't re-record it or anything. And it was quite nice. They've done it. Well, I can just go do 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 and it's over. You know, I like that. Um, but it's because they did it that I did it again. Else, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, your new record, uh, yeah. the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Um, there's, it's all, it's a, it plays to your strengths as an arranger, and there's you, you're uh, resampling people that have sampled your yes, work. Yes. Yeah. Including Kanye West, for yes. example, and as you say, the Prodigy. Yeah. What was the kind of genesis of the uh, project there? Which one? Uh, of, well, of the, of the whole, doing it as a whole. Well, of... there's two aspects to it. One is doing old material, which is really well known. And the other one is, well, the original thing was to do, I couldn't find any undiscovered material to record and I couldn't think of anything. So I wondered whether I could do really well-known songs that... Um, Everybody knows incredibly well. God Save the Queen, for example. Yes. Oh, yes, yeah, I suppose so. Yes, that's there on that additional thing. But, you know, all right, now we will rock you. Know, is there a way to do this that's... Um, I wish I'd never started because it became such a bloody nightmare. You know, everyone's remembering the original. I'm thinking, gee, they're going to think this is crap. You know, so I'm working on changing it, throwing it out. I mean, all the years I've spent doing it is mainly the stuff that got thrown out, you know. There's eight years of stuff that got thrown out and probably two years on the album, you know. Um... So the, so the idea was, can I do stuff that's completely differently? Um, and I was talking to my business manager, and he said he's never, ever worked with an album where people either like so much or hate so much. So I'm either a genius or a completely, as other people have put it, sort of vapid, limp, you know, sort of crap, one star, you know, just for effort. Um, so you, know, you either like it or you hate it, you know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I suppose that's in the nature of it. You know. You're as a someone who's done so many covers. Your is your attitude towards sampling that is kind of fair game. You know, in terms of like, say, Kanye West takes a chunk of one of your tracks and it becomes a track. Well, of the one artist, of the most well, he phones up and says, "Well, you know, they contact us and say, would you like to? Is it okay if we use this piece of music?" And we say, "Sure, providing we get this percentage of your album. Which bit am I going to complain about here?" <laughs> oh gee no I don't want any more money um, <laughs> no go away no I'm I'm not terribly in favour of people sampling and not paying for it and sneaking around and you know and that did happen with one very big act where we had a big legal action I don't want to say it now but um, we had a no it, it was massive attack um, we had a legal action, a two-year legal action. It was a massive attack. They sampled something, didn't credit it, and didn't ask. Right. You know, it was on. Um, so that turned into a big deal. So that's different. But otherwise, why not? But also, people sample a snare drum. It depends what they sample. You know, if they sample a big deal thing where it's your whole tune. Yeah. Which is what happened with massive attack. That's different to somebody just taking a, um, a little phrase here or something there. I mean, the Kanye West thing was very good of them to ask. I wouldn't have even noticed what they'd done, really. But when you listen, you can hear it is out. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I listened yeah. to both alongside. Did I you? realised it was a sample. I wouldn't have even it, noticed like... it, but when I listened to it, you can yeah, hear it. Yeah. But you want to listen to Black Milk, 
and where it came from. Um, it's only on, I think they took it off the album in the end, they were so pissed off with the legal action. But um, that is just identical. That really is nearly all the way through a couple of extra vocal lines and a bit of a drum. But, um, I mean, Kanye West didn't use the tune, didn't use it. He used a synth line, really, you know. But, yeah, same with The Prodigy, their, their tracks stand up. Well, they use the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they take the... Well, they make it into a riff, I guess. So it's not a riff in the original, really. Yeah, it? it was. It just oh, after the song was over, came the big instrumental riff. Yeah, and they yeah. kind of use it as their kind of opening riff, and it's all over that's the That's the whole thing. Well, it is the best bit of it, so they're all right. Yeah, no, that's okay. What do I complain? Prodigy phone up. Gee, we'd like to use your track. Well, we want a percentage of your track. Okay, great, you know. Oh, gee, that's terrible sampling. No, it's a good thing. No, I find it quite good. It's like a celebration of it, this new record. I, I suppose so. I mean, a song called For You it was a huge hit in Germany for this band called the Disco Boys, but not for us. Now it's a big feature on our concert. And we play mainly in Germany. It's a huge, big track in our, in our performance because of them, not because of us. Right. So but originally you've got a tune that's going... First of all, it sounds completely different. We will we will be just playing it on piano like that, doesn't it? Because I'm playing it slow. It sounds plaintive rather than triumphant. It's plaintive. And they're going, we will, we will rock you. God. You know, it's just that. Well, if you start putting chords to it. Instead of going, you might go. Okay, so that's. Never mind whether you know what it means, it's C to F, C to F. That's what you'd normally do. C to F and then F to C so it's different so now it's very sad now I change the same chord again change it and change it. in the end you've forgotten what the original sounds like all together and at one time I did a version that didn't go on the record I thought well what would what would Beethoven or Bach would have done and I had a written line underneath it Change keys. 
keep keep playing with it. No, do it like this. Well, I'm not. Don't sit there with the. The most important thing is not to have the original record, so you're kind of constantly referring back. And you could do it with anything. I mean, you just say, you just keep fiddling and keep fiddling and keep playing and keep playing, and then one day you think, oh well, that kind isn't too bad. Now I don't make a record out of it. But that's what I do. I just play the piano over and over, play it classically, play it this way, that way. See what happens. It's a shame about a little bit of the audio there with the piano, but it was a great honour to have him play for us and speak to us. Here's your weekly reminder to use the Amazon link on southlondonhardcore.com, sign up for a free Amazon Prime trial, and do all your Amazon shopping on there, and tell your friends to do both of those things, because the show only survives when you do that. South London Hardcore episode 150 will be live at Holdfest. Holdfest is a festival of live podcasts. Go to holdfastnetwork.com slash holdfest. Also on the bill will be Process, some special guests, and Daniel Ruiz Tyson, who's currently doing a podcast advent calendar, Daniel Ruiz Tyson's advent calendar, which is on holdfastnetwork.com and it's brilliant. It's funny and it's moving like all of his best work. Highly recommend that. T-shirts available from southlandhardcore.spreadshirt.co.uk mm-hmm.